typically I'm on a stage, you know, and there's 3,000 people in the audience or whatever. Whereas I can actually be on a virtual exchange with 3,000 people, you know, the same kind of interaction, but it's much more intimate, you know, and people can ask questions. And it's just, uh, I think what I've learned is that there's a really different communication structure that we're all kind of figuring out now. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm joined by Rita McGrath. Rita is one of the foremost writers, lecturers, speakers on business strategy. And today I'm talking to her because increasingly over the last couple of weeks, as, as we start to emerge from the crisis, clients and other CEOs have been talking to me about, how do I make sure I have the right strategy? What do I decide to stop doing? How do I put in place a process of innovation? And so today we're going to talk through Rita's model for how to handle that. How do you go back and review your existing portfolio Where are you putting your time and effort and energy and money? Is all of that still relevant? Review that, free up some resource, and then put that resource into what she calls discovery-driven growth. So how do you find some pains for your customers? We talk about some mistakes or some good examples where people have put that into practice. How do you find things that you can drive revenue from, certainly in the next six months? But in the next five years. Great article in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago looking at over the last couple of recessions, what percentage of businesses came out of the recession and grew significantly stronger. And it turns out it's about 9%. So if you do nothing, you have a one in 10 chance of coming out the other side. Those businesses that did thrive, not just survive, became more efficient and used the efficiency savings to drive innovation. They did better than companies that just cut costs. So I thought, having read that piece of work in the Harvard Business Review, who better to get on than Rita to find out what that model looks like? How do you do that review and how do you channel that revenue into innovation? So great conversation with Rita. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. So I'm Rita McGrath. I'm a professor at Columbia Business School and I write books and chat to people. But my real expertise is at the intersection of strategy and innovation. And I like to say, you know, I've been working in high uncertainty environments for years and the entire world has now come charging my way. (laughs) It's been pretty interesting. (laughs) And so what got you into this uncertainty space? How did you how did you find yourself here? Well, I took a job in a public policy out of my undergraduate years. And it was back in the day before anybody knew what a digital transformation was and basically worked for the city of New York doing a digital transformation. And it got me really interested in 
I look back on it now and realize what it was. It was a huge, large-scale organizational change program. We were going from paper to digital, and nobody really understood what that was. And so I got really interested in large-scale organizational change. Fast forward a few years, I went to the Wharton School, where I did my PhD. And my PhD supervisor had a center there called the um, Entrepreneurial Center, the Snyder Entrepreneurial Center at Wharton. And he'd secured funding for a three-year qualitative study at Citibank of their venturing program. And so what they wanted to do was have us do case studies of every venture they'd tried, the successful ones and the failed ones. And it was just echoes of the things I'd been so interested in doing before. And so we came out of that with a corporate venturing model, which still holds together pretty well. Uh, but then by then I was squarely in the wheelhouse of this stuff is just fascinating. Because it is, you know, it, it's uh, it's where everything comes together, right? The uncertainty, the strategy, the personalities, the politics, it's all there. And also the, in a world which is uncertain, things happen quicker. Then maybe the status quo gets unstuck. And so people have to go and um, do things more quickly. But what was, was your first book driven by that analysis of, of venture models? Yeah, it was called The Entrepreneurial Mindset. And I would say that book took pieces of those models. It didn't really present the whole thing because we wanted it to be a more broadly appealing book than just for people doing corporate venturing. Uh, but certainly entrepreneurial mindset covered finding opportunities. How do you make sense of them? How do you think more like an entrepreneur? And the inspiration for that book was some work that my co-author had done on serial or habitual entrepreneurs. So the trouble with studying entrepreneurship is anybody can get lucky once. You know, you just happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right thing and uh, boom, the business can take off. So it's really hard to draw enduring lessons from a one-time success. And so what we realized was if you really want to understand the methodology of entrepreneurship, you need to look for people that have done it multiple times because those are people that are onto something that's a system that works rather than just having been lucky. And what was what was some of your conclusions in in terms of the I don't know the DNA of of serial successful serial entrepreneurs? Well, the first thing is that they are absolute opportunity junkies. They're always always looking for opportunities, even if they don't plan to act on them. They sort of go around the world collecting opportunities, and and they have often we call them entrepreneurial goggles. They have this lenses through which you look at the world. And the metaphor comes from these old action movies, right? And the the, the spy in the action movie has to like steal something from a museum, let's say. And the museum is full of these laser um, beams which are part of the security system. So the spy kind of climbs over some of them and ducks under them. And it's like they have goggles that can see the laser beams. Well, what entrepreneurs do that are successful at doing this repeatedly, it's like they have goggles that look at the world in a different way than mostly you and I do. So I'll give you an example. One of my favorite guys who was actually an entrepreneur in residence at the Wharton School, a guy named John, John Osher, and he uh, created many, many businesses, but one of his most successful was the spin brush, you know, the spinning toothbrush that Crest later commercialized. Well, his very first business uh, came from a hobby his parents had, which they had taken up oil painting. And these oil paintings happened to be of nude ladies. And after the class was over, the paintings went up in the attic. Well, John Osher, at the age of about eight, figured out that uh, he could actually charge money to let his classmates come over at lunchtime <laughs> and take a look. <laughs> So just they're a different kind of person. <laughs> yes. Does that make them poor employees generally? I mean, does, do, do, is, there, is there a mindset that, that they end up running a business as opposed to being in one? Or is there a spectrum where you have that sort of intrapreneurship? 
Well, what I've found, my research suggests, is that there are actually three roles that you need for successful entrepreneurship. Now, these could be shared among many people, but there's three kinds of roles. So, so the first is clarity on strategy, and that's really provided by the executive lead team, executive leaders. So what are we going to do? What are we not going to do? Um, broadly speaking, right? What's, what's our goal? What's our direction? Then you have these John Osher types who, generally speaking, are very difficult employees. I mean, they're just, they love blank sheets of paper and building businesses. And when it comes to running businesses, you know, their mind is racing off to the next thing their goggles have revealed to them, right? Uh, but they love building things. So they're not bad at the building stage. And then what you have in between is a character we call the Sherpas. Now the Sherpa, it's like, if you want to go up the mountain in Nepal, you better bring a Sherpa because the Sherpa is going to know like, oh, you know, the wind's coming from that direction. We should travel this way or let's not summit today or let's summit today. You won't be able to later. So what I find with the Sherpas, and it's interesting because it's counterintuitive, is these are often people with long tenure in the organization. They know where all the bodies are buried. They have enormous amounts of social capital. They can call in favors. They can give favors. And they're the ones that kind of knit together the mothership with the ventures. And what I find if you under-resource or don't have people in that Sherpa role, it's really hard for the entrepreneurs for two reasons. One is the first you picked up, which is that they're, you know, they look at you and they're like, you've worked for 20 years for Procter & Gamble. Why am I going to your meeting? Like, do I want to report on my HR staff? Like, why are I, why am I even talking to you? And then, you know, so if you have that entrepreneur person without some buffer, uh, it can be a bit of a disaster. <laughs> Well, it's it's funny. I was I was reading three the three box solution recently, and and there some of the examples, some of the best examples of sort of incremental sort of evolution inside existing businesses are people who get to harness a maverick. You know, it's that it's it's exactly that sort of entrepreneur character, and somehow they make they make it work in their business. Exactly, exactly as you're saying. And so of the of that, one of your other books was the the fifty. 40 ways to find opportunities, market busters, it was called. Yeah, market busters, that's it, yeah. And so that was a while ago. Do you think, are they still true? Oh, a lot of them, yeah, became fabulous big businesses. Um, so what we did in that book was we broke them down into five um, categories. So the first category was really deeply understanding your customer. Uh, the second was really understanding your competitive landscape. Uh, the third, I think, was business models. The fourth was industries. And the fifth was completely new spaces, you know, tectonic spaces. And then inside each of those larger buckets, we had um, basically a catalog of specific moves that organizations could make. And most of those examples have held up pretty well. Yeah. And so we, we were chatting just before about, you know, how, what could people do? do in a crisis and we're going to go on to talk about what you what you think but but i guess i guess in that book there's there's a playlist of of things that people could go to and say you know because those strategies will still be relevant yeah what i think was useful about that book and it was misunderstood i think by people at the time but what was useful about it was we boiled the the action to the level of the strategic move so it didn't require that you sort of reinvent your whole company but it said here's some experiments you can try and um, and you know the, these are these are some things to look for. So kind of back to the goggles idea. Here's some things to look for. Um, so as an example, I'll give you an example from the book. It's dated now, but back in the day, it was quite quite interesting. If you think about loose change, right? You go out, 
when we were still spending cash on things. And, you know, men in particular would come home at the end of the day. And I don't know about your house, but in my house, it followed kind of a migratory path. So, you know, it would start off on the kitchen table and then it would, you know, make its way to the bedroom and then eventually it would end up in the jar and then the jar would, you know, accumulate and there'd be all these jars. And so what do you do with all this loose change? So the, <laughs> the um, traditional response of the banking community was, well, you wrap it all up in wrappers and you sign your name to it, right? And you show up at the bank during working hours uh, to get this thing converted. Now, are you happy to be there? No. Is the bank happy to see you? No. No one is happy. This is a great recipe for an entrepreneurial insight, right? And so this company called Coinstar set up these huge green machines with coin changing capability. It's this, it, it's not new technology or anything, but they said to the typically the grocery stores or high traffic areas, and they said to the owners of those high traffic areas, well, you know, we'll give you a piece of the proceeds if you let us take up four feet of your real estate. And so groceries, razor slim business, right? Um, but this is all great and terrific. So you bring your jar of change, you just dump it in, it counts it all up for you, it gives you a receipt, you can exchange it for real cash or whatever. Now here's the interesting thing, when they first started, they don't do this anymore, but when they first started, how much do you think they charged for this? And typically people will tell me, oh, 10%. What they finally figured out was that Americans are capable of dividing by 10. We can do this. <laughs> so if you change 10 bucks worth of change and you get a dollar taken off it, well, like, oh my God, that's so expensive. It turns out if you charge us like 8.924763%, we're like, our brains just go to fuzz and we're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know? And then today what they've done is they've got um, arrangements now with Amazon and, and others. So they don't take a cut at all if you take a gift card, because then that partner knows that that money's coming back to you. And it's basically, it's found money for the partner. It's found money for you. You know, you weren't spending it on anything useful anyway. So it's kind of an interesting example of one of the stories we we started looking at in the book, and it's still alive and well today. Well, it's finding finding a problem that needs a solution. And you're right, going to a bank. I, I can't remember the last time. I've been to a bank, let alone wanting to go to one and queue up. But I have seen, I have seen when I was in the US, seeing those machines in um, in supermarkets. In fact, there's a bank over here called uh, Metro Bank that put those machines in the bank and didn't charge a percentage because they said it was a service to their customers. That's one of the most interesting parts of this story, actually, is because I went and I talked to bankers and I'm like, look at this thing. It was like $1.5 billion worth of revenue shortly after they launch this. And I said, why aren't you guys doing this? This isn't, isn't this your core business? And it, what they said was very interesting. They said, we viewed that as something that our customers would expect from us. Therefore, we couldn't charge for it. Therefore, it's a cost center, not a profit center. Uh, yeah. Interesting, huh? Yeah, it is. But you know, if there's a, if there's a, some advantage to be had, or it makes you, makes you warm and fuzzy, feels warm and fuzzy about your bank. Yeah. So yeah, they're missing a trick. So you, when we were talking earlier, you were saying that one of the things that you've been drawing on is all of your sort of experience to help businesses uh, think differently about, about where they are. And certainly the clients that I've spoken to and certainly lots of other CEOs, the lockdown, just the business interruption, the change, you know, some of my clients were big into hospitality and retail, you know, that's, that's gone away. Some of them actually did uh, physical infrastructure they haven't been able to do any work for the last sort of six weeks. They're just starting to come back to work this week. So the one thing that they're saying to me all the time is, is whereas we thought we might have had time to review our strategy or that, or business as usual would mean that we didn't have time to look at our strategy. Now they, they're absolutely saying we need to do some sort of review and, and our time horizon is really, you know, what do we need to do this side of Christmas and looking at some of the research of, 
you know, companies that survived the last couple of recessions, there's the review what you're doing, reduce, reduce where you can and take some of that resource and put it into something that might, that might be an accelerant to your revenue. So what, how should, how should people be thinking about, about that framework? Sure. So I um, have a method that I call the rapid portfolio review. Step one is you find an intern or maybe you find somebody who can do this for you, but you just basically do a, a very quick and dirty inventory of all the activities that are going on above a certain threshold. So if I'm spending more than X on this, it belongs on a list. And then you very quickly score it in terms of levels of uncertainty. And so the first thing I would say to your listeners is, those things we thought were low uncertainty. So you mentioned hospitality, construction, in my case, education, you know, all those things we thought were fairly low uncertainty and fairly predictable have now within the space of three or four months been booted up into higher uncertainty space. So I have a portfolio framework that we map out to, to look at that, just where are things? Uh, because when your business is that uncertain, you make different strategic decisions than you do. When it's not. So you've got your list. Uh, step two is review your strategy, right? And is it dependent on things that are no longer true? So come up with a, a refreshed stat strategy statement and we help guide people through that. And it doesn't have to be a huge, enormous, complicated exercise. It's kind of directionally, where do we think we want to be putting our bets? Then, and this is where you take the strategy and convert it into something that's very actionable for people. I recommend the creation of a set of what I call strategic screening statements. So as an example, let's say that I'm a Dyson, you know, Dyson's very much in the news. And uh, I mean, Dyson's strategy has been forever to take their highly evolved technical capabilities and apply it to things people need for every day. So vacuum cleaners and hair dryers, and basically if it blows or sucks or has a battery, you know, Dyson's <laughs> willing. But part of their strategy has always been, we need to get paid back for all that ingenuity. And so our prices have to be high. They have to be, you know, 30%, 40% margins. So that would be an example of a dimension of their strategy. And that dimension you would score by saying, okay, it gets the highest score if it's 30% margin or better. It gets sort of the medium score if it's kind of 15 to 20. And it's a candidate for just being knocked out of the portfolio if it's under 50, right? So that's how you might score it. So you'd get your scores. And I would say 10 to 12 statements is probably enough. And then you go back to your list and you say, okay, we're going to score all these activities on our strategy list. And we're going to, then what you do is you rank order them. And by percent of perfect, you know, so you'll have a perfect score. Nothing ever gets the full perfect score, but you can get a proportion. And the reason for doing the scoring first is that it can help take a lot of the politics and the emotion out of this whole process. Because if we can all agree that this thing here get, used to be a six, now it's a one, <laughs> you know, and it falls to the bottom. And I think it's really important to have people be honest about where things are because things are not where they were six months ago. So you've got your rank ordered things. Now what you're looking at is, okay, what are things we might wish to disengage from? Um, so obviously you're gonna start at the bottom of the list and just ask the question, does it still fit our strategy? Is it still gonna be a growth engine for the future? And if the answer is no, those become things you can consider disengaging from, so process of disengagement, that should free up some resources. Then you use some of the tools in things like Market Busters or some of the other work I've done to say, okay, where are our capabilities now relevant to new opportunities? And Dyson's actually a fantastic example of this. Um, right at the beginning of the crisis, I believe the NHS sort of turned to Sir Jim James and said, you know, is it possible for you guys to help us if we run into an acute shortage of ventilators? And within 10 days, their design team created from scratch a working ventilator and then converted over some of their manufacturing capability uh, to, to do that. Now, as it turns out, I don't think the NHS has actually completed that order, 
But I think about the option value opened up for Dyson in healthcare. They weren't in healthcare before. Now they're there. And what you know, you let that guy loose on a big opportunity space, and you'll be amazed to see what happens. Well, I was going to say on Dyson though, they uh, with your view about margin, they had spent lots of money working on a Dyson electric car, and they said, look we can see the margin on electric cars going back to the automotive levels of traditional automotive. So we're going to come out of it because it doesn't meet, it doesn't meet that criteria and that we're not going to follow the sunk cost. We're just going to walk away. Absolutely. And that's exactly the kind of thinking I'm talking about here. So the last step of the process is then for each of those new opportunities, you don't plan them as though you knew what you were doing. You plan them to discover. You So you engage what I call discovery driven planning in taking those ideas forward. And so does that mean you break it down into steps and you say, like, what do we think our assumption is and how do we test it quickly and cheaply and, 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 and? Absolutely. And so um, I, for your listeners, I publish a monthly uh, newsletter and I had this whole beautiful newsletter plan for 2020. You should have seen it. It was gorgeous. <laughs> it was like I had a piece on national International Women's Month and the great wealth transfer to women. And I think this month I was going to be talking about medical diagnostics. So I had it all planned out. But um, um, matters have taken <laughs> a different turn. And so what I'm trying to do each month this year is write something that I think will be valuable to people about high uncertainty environments. Um, because if you think about it, a lot of senior leadership may have gotten to a very high decision-making role without ever having been exposed to a high uncertainty environment. It's entirely possible. And so a lot of the toolkits that could be useful to them, uh, they just don't know about. So one of the one of my sort of missions at the moment is to try to get people calm down and say, we actually have 30, 40 years of really solid practice and understanding of how you deal with high uncertainty situations, how you learn quickly, how you convert assumptions to knowledge, how you do that without taking on a lot of risk, blah, 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 blah. And so one of the things I'm doing each month and why, why I raise it now is, um, so last month I wrote about how do you think about future scenarios. This month I'm writing about how you do an experiment. A lot of people don't know and they make a lot of mistakes when they go out and experiment. So they'll do things like give a random assortment of people a survey and hope that something useful comes out. <laughs> you know? They're not strategic in how they design their experiments. So that's this month. Well, I well, I, re I was looking at that because you were you were talking about uh, Peter Kuhn at Optimizely, and I saw him I saw him speak at the Web Summit in Dublin a few years ago. And when he does the talk about the work he did for the Obama administration, he shows this sort of old whole A B testing, and it's I don't know how many people in the audience, hundreds of people in the audience, and he says, okay, which which image would you pick? People put their hands up. Okay, which 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 messaging would you pick? People put their hands up. You know, and in the end, the the vast majority of people were completely wrong. And so most of the people in senior leadership positions have got there by being right. And so when somebody says, What do you think? It's like, well, this is what I think. And so that's what the company does. And they don't do a test. His research, or the, you know, when he did the sort of fundraiser for the Obama camera, what ended up generating the money was totally different from what anybody with an opinion might have picked. And so, and so that's just, it's fascinating that, as you say, people just don't know how to run, run experiments. And one of the most interesting things about the Peter Kuhn example is that all of the people on the campaign had been involved in some way in producing video content. Um, so they'd either touched it or approved it or heard about it or, you know, they knew the video content was coming. And so of the five images, he showed his testing groups. Um, one of them was just a static image of Obama, a photograph of Obama with his family. And the rest were all videos. It was like him speaking and him interacting with the community and him giving a stump speech. And so every member of the campaign 
passionately believed that the video content would be the most compelling. It wasn't, it was the static image. But I think this, this raises a really super important point for your listeners, which is you are not the expert on your customer. You are the expert on what you do and your expertise is often in the way of what your customer actually understands. Well, you gave, you give an example where you, you'd done a survey and got it, got it horribly wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Pray that no one ever makes that mistake again. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, this was in my enthusiastic, rather young PhD days. So um, we had a research contract with General Electric and we got the really glamorous part of General Electric. I mean, no, could we get airplane engines? No. Did we get, you know, even batteries? No. We got the distribution business, (laughs) which basically was this business of taking uh, and distributing GE light bulbs and hardware and electrical supplies to little manufacturers all over the country. We had important business, but certainly not one of the more glamorous. And um, the head of this business came to us and he said, you know, I'd really like to understand where I need to be making investments to improve our customer experience. And so we went ahead and designed this survey. And two of the things that matter when you're in a distribution business is, does the stuff come on time? And is it what you ordered? So we asked a question, you know, how satisfied are you? Pretty typical satisfaction survey, right? Uh, with timeliness and with accuracy, basically. And the results came back, which was showed that they were considerably less satisfied with timeliness than they were with accuracy. And so we said, all right, well, it's clear, you know, you should be making your investments and in improving timeliness. So six months worth of investment, they work on all these different things to kind of get the stuff delivered more quickly. And we stand back and we wait for the applause as orders start piling in. And the sound was like crickets. I mean, absolutely nothing, no response whatsoever. And so then we took the audacious step of actually going out and talking to a few of our target customers. And basically what they said was, well, you know, you guys are okay. You're sort of on a par with everybody else in terms of delivery timeliness. And we can kind of make do with that as long as you let us know. If you're going to be late, that's not a big problem. The big problem is when you get something wrong and then we have to like unpack it and send it back and it screws up our inventory. And that's you, and you guys are far worse than competition on that. And the penny dropped. And we were like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be looking at are you satisfied in isolation? Maybe we should be asking about relative to your expectations or the competition or whatever. So I think one thing to remember with, with surveys, it's always got to be relative to what? right? I mean, imagine you're in a relationship, right? And you say, well, I wonder if I've scaled, darling, how would you rate me? And you get back an answer that's like a three. What do you do with that? (laughs) So anyway, we asked relative measures um, relative to competition. So it gives you a sense of what they're comparing you to. But the second important thing was we had a dependent variable, which was as you look at your budget over the next year, how much of it you know, would you be willing to spend with GE? So now we can compare the action we took strategically against the outcome that we are interested in, which is the, the intent to purchase. And people now talk about net promoter scores and those kind of scores, but it was it was a very humbling learning experience. And so the the intention to purchase thing was that was that was where you could then track over time whether their intention to purchase and purchase went up. Yep. Very good. What else should people be thinking about? right now or even because you're probably in this space all all the time are are there even some interesting stories that are coming that you're seeing of people making hay oh yeah um one of the more interesting ones is a company called timberlane i believe they're called they're based in pennsylvania and their business for years and years has been making beautiful shutters you know for for designers and shutters and uh well, nobody's really in the market for shutters these days. And what they realized, though, was that, I mean, they were staring at the abyss. I mean, their orders went from you know normal to zero in a matter of days. 
But what they realized was that they could take the capabilities that they'd used to create these beautifully designed custom shutters and convert them into making protective equipment. And so we're just doing stories like that everywhere. Like there's a guy who, uh, an Israeli guy, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he he's makes he makes um, those light up bars, you know, and lanyards for big events, stuff like that, and he imports all that stuff from China. Well, nobody's buying light up bars or lanyards right now because nobody's at conventions and events. So his business just went crazy. But what he realized was that he had these incredibly strong and trusting relationships with manufacturers in China already built up because of his business. And so he went into business um, now consulting with other manufacturers who want to source product in from China, uh, but didn't have any ties or connections. So, so he's out of his regular business, but he's now in the advice business, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so that's part of your part of your framework, looking at your capabilities and through a different through a different lens. Yeah. So one thing that I really encourage people to focus on is um, what's the customer job to be done. And I'll use that. That's a phrase that Clayton Christensen developed some years ago. But it's so powerful. And he says, look, don't think about selling your product or service. Think about your customers hiring those things to get jobs done in their lives. And you really want to get into the customer's head in terms of jobs done in their lives. So let me give you a a trivial example, right? Um, So I wanted to send a box of books to a client and I had everything I needed on on, on a piece of paper, right? So my account number and uh, who the client was and where it was going, all the the different information. And so doorbell rings, my, my FedEx guy is there waiting for me and he looks at my box in absolute horror and he says, it doesn't have a label. And I'm like, well, okay, um, get a label from the truck if you need one. I'm happy to write you up one. Then he says to me, well, we don't carry labels on the truck. Now, meanwhile, I am thinking I am the only person in the what, 50-year-old history of Federal Express who has tried to ship a package without a label. This has never happened before in all of human history. So I'm sort of thinking, this is, I'm not being mean to the guy because it's not his fault, right? He's working within a system that's got constraints. So the next thing I say to him is I said, well, okay, how would I get a label? And he said, oh. Very helpfully, I think we could overnight you one if you called and asked. <laughs> or I think there's a way you can get one on the computer, you know. And then he left. He left me in my box, you know, forlornly on the stoop. Now, the reason that's such an interesting story to me is I'm sure if you talk to Fred Smith, who's the CEO of FedEx, and, and asked him why this occurred, you would have this whole story about that. that label is the thing that ties together the shipping productivity with your billing account, with the location tracking device, with the blah, 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 right? Ties together all the operations on this document. But from a customer point of view, you know, he left me in my box. Now, had I been urgently needing that box to get somewhere, I would have gotten in my car and driven down to UPS and FedEx would have missed that sale and nobody would have known. So this kind of thing, it's back to our entrepreneurial goggles, right? This kind of thing happens all the time. And what successful entrepreneurs do is they see that point of friction and they say, you know, I bet there's an opportunity in that. And then, you you know, then you do some testing and explore. You know, that brings, that reminds me of, uh, there's a book I read called The, the Best Service is No Service by, who's the first VP of customer experience at Amazon. And and he said most people look at uh, where did we you know where did we destroy customer satisfaction or they're looking at a customer satisfaction survey, and at the time Amazon weren't profitable and they knew they were going to scale but they didn't want to hire any more people so he obsessed at looking at the why does anyone contact us because actually they nobody wants nobody's ringing them for a chat they're only ringing you because there's a friction and so it's like how do we 
how do we get obsessive about taking out the friction, which is where the make it easy to do a return, free online returns. Because most companies would say, well, somebody will steal a TV. They'll say, they'll say they've sent it back and they didn't. You know, there's that sort of that sort of bureaucracy would kick in at that point. And they're like, well, actually what dwarfs it is that that is dwarfed by taking all the friction, not having anybody to police the system and letting people do it themselves. And that, um, I was just thinking your example there, uh, I, that's my label. You, you now, for, for a parcel I'm posting tomorrow, you get, all you get is you get a three dimensional barcode on your phone, take it to the post office and the post office prints you the label and you give them the package. Oh, well, they figured that out then. Yeah, so that, so that, but yeah, they would come and collect it. If somebody, if you're collecting it, you still need a label. There's, there's a thing, there's an opportunity for somebody to fix. Totally. Ah, so um, is there a thing that you now know that it would have been nice or fun or you wish you'd known at some other point in your life? Pre-crisis to post-crisis? Oh, yes, or, or just, you know, well, something that I've learned, I think, is that this new way of relating to one another that we're learning about, right, is actually, interestingly, far more intimate than the traditional way that we would have interacted. So, you know, in my in my world as a speaker or a lecturer or whatever, typically I'm on a stage, you know, and there's 3,000 people in the audience or whatever, whereas I can actually be on a virtual exchange with 3,000 people, you know, the same kind of interaction, but it's much more intimate. You know, and people can ask questions. And it's just, uh, I think what I've learned is that there's a really different communication structure that we're all kind of figuring out now. Um, and it's got its pluses and it's got its minuses. But one of the things that has surprised me is how how intimate things are and how forgiving people are. You know, I mean, we're all peeping into each other's kitchens and living rooms and the dog wanders by. And <laughs> you know, one of the funniest conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks was... Um, I was preparing for a virtual session um, and the instructions from the organizer very helpfully said, please make sure there is nothing in the background that should not be. So I just wrote a little meme on tweet, Twitter and I said, I wonder what happened that caused them to issue, <laughs> <laughs> issue that recommendation. <laughs> and of course it's Twitter. So I start getting back all these different uh, contributions. Um, and one was, oh, you know, the competitor's logo and product, probably that not cool. Um, but the best of all came from my friend Alf Steiner, who teaches at um, the Norwegian Technical University. And he had run across this movie of a newscaster in Spain who was busy newscasting. He was looking at the screen, not looking at what was behind him. And a young lady who was neither his girlfriend, nor his wife, nor completely dressed was seen walking by. <laughs> <laughs> so I told Alf, that, that wins the contest, hands down, <laughs> for the, something should not be in the background. Well, I was reading something the other week. There was uh, somebody's been doing she was famous or is famous for sort of interior design. And she's been doing a series of sort of live streams for her, from her bathroom, right? That's been her, that's been her. <laughs> and unbeknownst to her, her husband, uh, her husband steps into the bathroom <laughs> unclothed while she's live streaming. <laughs> oh dear. And so it's, so yeah, it, uh, it's definitely happened, but you're right. People are very forgiving, aren't they? You know, I think we're all, you know, delightfully being a lot more patient with one another than perhaps we would have been in another context. Um, and I think that's, that's been interesting. I think the sort of work from home or video conference will remain, will, I mean, it's very informal and I think it'll remain informal as things go back to normal. You know, people will be more forgiving of the children running around or then people will be less embarrassed if there's an interruption from their family than they certainly were before. 
Yeah, well, I think it's really positive because, I mean, especially for professional women, I mean, I'm old enough to have lived through a period where if you had kids and you were trying to project a professional image, you wouldn't even mention them. I mean, it was just, oh, no, no, I'm just, I'm all business. I'm here for work. Like you had no personal life or anything, which is really horrible. I mean, you know, people are complete people and there's no reason you have to be ashamed of having children. I mean, humanity would be in a very bad place if all of us suddenly decided not to have children. So, you know, it's not like it's something to be ashamed of. And yet I think for a lot of times this sort of notion of having, saving face and showing up and you know all that um, and and i think now people are a lot more understanding that we are complete packages and you know with all the bumps and flaws that that suggests i have to say i've i spend i'm spending a lot of time on teams or zoom or google Meet, and and i'm fascinated by the inside of people's houses in fact i'd rather see the inside of their house than some fake bahaman beach Absolutely. There's actually a whole category of new hobbyists. Have you heard about this? These are people who actually stalk celebrities' homes. <laughs> it's like a new hobby. They collect images of celebrities' homes and post them places. It's like, okay. The human being is an incredible thing. <laughs> uh, Rita, uh, you've written a number of books, and your last one last year was Seeing Round Corners. If people were going to pick up one book from you, is that is last year's book the one to pick up given the crisis or is another one more relevant do you think or i think seeing around corners is relevant because it talks about the first part is really how do you see an inflection point coming but the middle part is how do you decide what to do about it which is this whole discovery driven portfolio review kind of thing and then the last bit of it is how do you bring the organization with you um and it's written from a perspective of innovation but you know you can apply the same tools of innovation to your regular business now because we're all in massive uncertainty. So I think that's probably a good place to start. Fab. And uh, you were saying to me earlier, you do a fireside chat? I do. This is this is something that happened completely by accident. Maybe that falls in another one of your things I learned that I didn't know before categories. Um, so sort of by accident, I, I invited um, um, Sally Helgeson to join me for a fireside chat for International Women's Day, right? And then Alexander Osterwelder, who's another friend of mine, happened to be having a book that was coming out. And so I said, oh, you know, why, why don't you pop in on Friday? So we did that. And then I was talking to David Ulrich about how this crisis is affecting HR and what needs to happen. And I said, well, you know, pop in. And so now it's become <laughs> it's become a regular thing. So uh, typically it's, it's, it's about an hour and it's very informal. It's really like this. Us just chatting, um, and then we, we record them and then rebroadcast them afterwards. And just wonderful people. So Amy Edmondson's going to be on. Jeff Pfeffer, uh, the, the CEO of uh, Southern New Hampshire University, is going to be joining me. So it's really a very fun kind of way to play with what what really smart people are thinking about now. And I've been getting great feedback. People are saying it's so positive. It's so nice to hear people looking forward. You know, giving us ideas we can use. So um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a nice innovation for me. And so the place to find that is on YouTube. We'll put a link to it on the show notes. Yeah, my, um, my, my channel on YouTube is a great place to find it. And then there'll be links on my website, which is RitaMcGrath.com. Fab. And Rita, what other books have you read along the way, either that you think relate to the, the current crisis or maybe it had a profound impact on you throughout your, your career? What? Oh, there's a lot. There is. There, what, two, two or three that you think should be on everybody's bookshelf? Uh, so I'm a huge fan of Amy Webb, who's a futurist. And Amy is a particularly generous person. Um, I think her website is called futuretoday.org or .com, um, but it's the Future, Future Institute, Institute for the Future. And she has a summary of major trends 
and downloadable tools and all this stuff is available for free right on her website. So if you just search search on Amy Webb Future Today, you'll find her, her location. So she's got a couple of great books out. Um, the most recent one is The Big Nine, and it's looking at how artificial intelligence is potentially going to unfold. And she has three different scenarios, which I think are really interesting to, to think about. So that's one I can recommend. Her previous book also was called The Signals Are Talking, which is how futurists sort of organize the way that they think about the world. So that's very cool. Um, another book that I've, I'm sticking to recent ones. Um, so one that I've been very taken with is a book called Loon Shots by Safi Bakal. And Safi is a biotech entrepreneur, um, sort of he gave up on academia and physics, much to his parents' eternal dismay, and <laughs> went out and created this massively successful biotech firm. <laughs> I'm sure they're still telling their friends, oh, you know, he's just taking a break. <laughs> but anyway, he wrote, this, he wrote this great book called Loon Shots, which um, really looks at how how you can create a culture of, of continual innovation you know, without, without uh, killing it. And then um, for those that are experimenting right now, another book I can highly recommend is by Alberto Savoia, and it's called The Right It. Alberto is the guy that built Google's original um, AdWords engine, the thing that kind of powers all their profitability, and he's been in product design and so forth. And what he does in the book is he takes you through how you test an idea. And one of the most powerful things he talks about is, you know, the way a lot of entrepreneurs, not, not the really good ones, but the way a lot of entrepreneurs do do things as they build something and then they come to you the customer and say well look i built this would you like to buy it what alberto says is shift your mindset the other way around you have your customers tell you the thing that they want to buy and if enough of them do that then you will build it for them <laughs> and it's just a way of flipping your head around right i thought that that was brilliant oh you've got you've got something about that in the newsletter the uh smoke test yeah yeah, yeah, that sort of build a build a build a web page, see if anybody arrives, see if you can make an economic model from it, and if they do, then maybe build it. That was how Buffer got started. That was the uh, the story of, of Buffer, which is a, a device that lets you tweet more consistently. I mean, who even knew that was a human need? <laughs> <laughs> All that people would pay for it. Oh, brilliant, Rita! Thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. And uh, if people want to reach me, I'm really easy to find. I'm at readamagraph.com. And if you're interested in more about that five-step process, um, it's in my April newsletter. Uh, but I'll send you the link to it. That's brilliant. We'll put that in the show notes. Rita, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it would be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter, the simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>